Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Inalhamdulillah, wassalat, wassalam, ala rasulillah. Dear brothers and sisters in Islam, assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Alhamdulillah, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Dr. Bilal Phillips to you to speak about the rights of non-Muslims and our responsibility towards them. Alhamdulillah, I think truly that Dr. Bilal Phillips doesn't need much introduction now. He's so well known in this country and all around the world. And perhaps he's written so many books on Islam that it's, it's quite mind-boggling to wonder where he gets the time to do everything he does, mashallah. And for those of you who are, who are internet users and use the World Wide Web, maybe you've already accessed his website where you can get much information from Islam. So really, I think he's very well known and we don't need to go into every single book that he has written, inshallah. But anyhow, the topic is the right of non-Muslims and our responsibility, our heavy responsibility towards them. And this includes some subtopics. Upholding the noble qualities of Islam, the non-Muslims as our neighbors, presenting the truth with good manners and wisdom, and clarifying the wrongfulness of terrorism and extremism in Islam. Alhamdulillah, after the talk, perhaps you'd like to field some questions about, if you could keep it to the topics in hand, and there will be some microphones, roving microphones, in the hall, so that you can put your questions, inshallah. So, without further ado, Dr. Bilal Phillips. Thank you, brothers. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, wa salatu wa salam ala rasulil kirim, wa ala ali wa sahabi, wa man istanna bi sunnati layawmiddin. All praise is due to Allah and may Allah's peace and blessings on his last prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and on all those who follow the path of righteousness until the last day. The topic, the rights of non-Muslims and our responsibility towards them is fundamentally a topic addressing the responsibility of da'wah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed us with the message of Islam through the efforts of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, who dedicated his life to conveying the word of Allah to us. It has reached us. It's a blessing that we have. And we have a responsibility to convey that message to those around us. That is basically the, <clears throat> the rights of non-Muslims uh, over us in this particular context. And that right has been stressed in the Quran when Allah told uh, Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu This is in the 16th chapter, verse 125. Call to the way of your Lord with wisdom and uh, good preaching 
in instructing Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu because the fact that the Quran, though initially revealed to the Prophet Sallallahu its message, its instructions uh, continue to everyone who would read it afterwards. So it is addressing us directly. And this is a command, an instruction in the Quran to act on this. Furthermore, Allah goes on to say in the 41st chapter, verse 33, and there is none better in speech than one who calls to Allah and does righteous deeds and says, indeed, I am among the Muslims. This is the best, the best thing that we can say. The most praiseworthy form of speech that we can utilize is that of da'wah, calling people to Allah. Doing righteousness, because of course to call people to Allah and not do righteousness is to call them and then dissuade them, discourage them, because of course our actions should be consistent with our speech. <clears throat> and that we say, indeed, we are among the Muslims. We don't hide ourselves. We don't try to disappear into society. Uh, whether we're at universities or we're on job sites or whatever, uh, you know, no one would know we are a Muslim unless we told them. Uh, no, this isn't the way. A Muslim is known. We say we are Muslim. Saying we're Muslims is saying it in words as well as in our daily dealings with them, how we appear even. Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu in many statements, stressed the importance of distinguishing the believers from the disbelievers. This is why, you know, he instructed, for example, uh, if we wear turbans, he said you should wear caps under your turbans to distinguish yourself from the pagans. We said to grow our beards, trim our mustaches, distinguish ourselves from the pagans. This distinction is something which we need to maintain to establish ourselves as Muslims in the society. We should not be hiding and become invisible. Our women don't have a choice because the hijab requirements makes them very obvious. But unfortunately, for many men, they feel, yes, the women should do this, but for themselves, they can dress like kafirs and, you know, it doesn't matter. Meaning they just, they're, they, they, they're indistinguishable from kafirs. Now, the dress of the country, pants and shirts and these kind of things, of course, are not in and of themselves, you know, we could say kafir dress. It is the dress of the people. However, as Muslims, we have an obligation to use, if we, if we use that particular dress, we should use it or wear it in conformity with Islamic teachings. 
Meaning that if one wears pants and we know that the basic design of Western pants is to expose the aura, you know, that is the basic design, that is the basic intent in making pants from a Western per perspective because the main goal of dress in the West is to promote sexuality, to promote the private parts of the individual to attract the opposite sex. This is the basic goal. So knowing that, then one has to modify those pants in such a way that they conform with Islamic dress. Uh, we know that for a man, what is between the navel and the knee is considered to be a part of his aura. What is between the navel and the knee. And that should be covered. And we say, when we say covered, just as we will insist on a woman, if she's wearing hijab, if she's wearing a, you know, a um, aerobic bodysuit, you know, right, with a scarf on her head, and she wants to go out like that, you're going to stop her at the door and say, hey, where are you going? You know, she says, well, I'm covered. I'm covered. All that's visible is my face and hands. But hey, you know, you're wearing this bodysuit which is showing all your body parts. Right? You're going to stop her. In the same way, if we wear pants which hug our, uh, our thighs when we walk, when we sit, when we bend, then it is just like the woman wanting to wear that aerobic bodysuit. So, we must wear a top, a shirt, which then comes down at least to the area of our knees to cover that area. If we don't modify and wear, you know, large size pants, you know, extra large, so that when we bend, etc., and these things, these are not being shown, you know, uh, like the Turkish pants with a crotch around your knees or around your ankles. You know, if you're not prepared to wear those kind of pants, right? then you should wear some uh, very loose pants with a top which is going to come down and cover as support to cover that area properly. This is part of proper Islamic dress. It's not saying that you cannot wear a shirt and pants, but it's saying that you cannot wear it as the kafirs wear it. You must modify it so it is in conformity with the Islamic principles of dress. And you become known as a Muslim. Also, that the pant that you wear, it should not go below the ankle. This is a part of Islamic dress. I mean, of course, you know, some people make a big issue and say, hey, why? Why do you have to keep stressing this thing of pants below the ankle? You know, you know there are other big things happening out there. You know, Kosovo. Why are you talking about pants under the... the, the hey, well, we're not talking about this in the context of Kosovo, Right? That is a problem that we should try to deal with as Muslims. But at the same time, we shouldn't ignore the, the individual problems that we may have. Because changing the situation in Kosovo is something, to a large degree, beyond our abilities. And Allah will not ask us why you didn't change the situation in Kosovo. But He will ask us why you wore your pants under your ankles. Because that is something that is in your power to change, to correct, and to live in accordance with 
the sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad which is an instructed sunnah. Not just a personal preference on the part of the Prophet Muhammad so that we may refer to as natural sunnah. But this is an instructed sunnah. Therefore, we should conform with this instruction. Prophet Muhammad said that what is below the ankle is in the hellfire. So he has put, by saying that, he has put seriousness to it. What is below the ankle is in the hellfire. So let us not, you know, be, become lax with this which is so simple. In the same way, we can stop putting the razor blade to our cheeks and, you know, scraping off the hair off our faces. You know, uh, it is easier to grow your beard than to shave because shave is problems. You have to every morning get up and put on the lather and scrape it across your face, cutting yourself sometimes. And, you know, so, I mean, this is, this is effort. It is, it is far easier for you to grow your beard, you know. In the same way, we should do that, as I said, we should also adjust our pants, if we're wearing pants, that they do not, or whether, uh, any other garment we wear, it does not go below the ankle. And this is specific for males. Once we have done that, we have now you know, made our dress in conformity with Islamic standards of dress. And when we go outside looking like that, of course, we are going to look strange. You see, what's happening? Why do you ask people why they don't want to do this? Because they don't want to look strange. They want to look like everybody else. Right? So you can walk down the street without people looking at you. But at the same time, we insist that our women must go outside looking strange. You see, what makes them feel weaker, what makes them discouraged more than we, you know, disappearing in the crowd and them having to stand up, stand out? We should be prepared to stand beside them, going out, looking, quote-unquote, strange in the society, just as they have to do so. And this will give them the kind of encouragement to stand firm and to maintain their hijab and these type of things. So, saying that we are among the believe Muslims, and here it means amongst the believers, this is a statement not just in words, but in our expression, how we present ourselves to the society, you know. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, this is the best speech. There is none better in speech than one who does so. Then, the issue of da'wah, we tend to want to turn over to somebody else, to another group, or to the scholars, or to, you know, those who are knowledgeable, etc. There's a tendency for people to want to do this. However, that obligation, this right which the non-Muslims have over us, is an individual right. It is over each and every one of us. Prophet Muhammad said, بَلِّغُوا anni walau ayah." Convey whatever you have learned from me, even if it is only a single verse from the Quran. Every one of us knows some Quran. We're making salah. Surat al-Ikhlas, or it's also referred to as Surat al-Tawheed. This is the most fundamental uh, refutation of Christianity that you can find in the whole Quran. 
it is a fundamental refutation of Hinduism, of Buddhism, of Sikhism, and all the other isms out there. Surah At-Tawheed, Al-Ikhlas. Qul Allahu Ahad. And we all know it. Well, it is our responsibility to carry it to the non-Muslims. An individual responsibility. As the Prophet said, And this means that whatever walk of life we find ourselves in, whether we are on the university campuses or in the schools, public school system or private schools or whether we are on the job, we're cab drivers or we're you know, electricians or we're uh, engineers, doctors, whatever field we may be in, we have that obligation to carry whatever we have learned from the Prophet Muhammad as individuals to carry it to the non-Muslims. An individual obligation. This is their right over us. So that they will not on the day of judgment when they have been assigned to hell, when it is evident to them that they are going to hell, that they will point their fingers at us and say, double the punishment for that one. Because I went to school with him. I was at university with him. So many classes I sat in for years. And he never said a single word about Islam to me. I worked with him at the job. For years. And he never opened his mouth one time to tell me what a Muslim was. This, we want, this is a situation that we should fear. We should fear that we come before Allah on the day of judgment and people going to hell will be pointing their fingers at us saying that we did not do our duty. These are sins against us. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his messenger did not leave that obligation merely as an instruction, as a command, call to the way of your Lord. There is none better in speech. Convey whatever you have learned. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Baqarah said, after saying that the best in speech are those who call to the way of their Lord, he went on to say, وَمَنْ أَظْلَمُ مِمَّنْ كَتَمَ شَهَادَةً عِنْدَهُ مِنَ اللَّهِ and there is none more evil, more oppressive than the one who hides the witness that he has from Allah. Quran that we have from Allah, this is a witness unto mankind. And we are witnesses to carry that Quran, the message, onto mankind. If we hide that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, there is none more evil. Woman adlamu. None more evil. Who is more evil than that? Furthermore, in Surah Al-Baqarah, that was verse 140, in verse 159, 
Allah goes on to make an even more dreadful statement with regards to those who hide the message of Islam. Saying, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يَكْتُمُونَ مَا أَنزَلْنَا مِنَ الْبَيِّنَاتِ وَالْهُدَىٰ مِنْ بَعْدِ مَا بَيَّنَّاهُ لِلنَّاسِ فِي الْكِتَابِ أُولَٰئِكَ يَلْعَنُهُمُ اللَّهُ وَيَلْعَنُهُمُ الْلَاعِنُونَ Indeed, those who hide what have revealed of the clear messages and guidance after it has been made clear to the people in the scripture. Indeed, those are cursed by Allah and cursed by all who would curse. They are cursed by Allah. أُولَٰئِكَ يَلْعَنُهُمُ Allah. And they're cursed by everyone who would curse. All the people who would suffer as a result of our not conveying that message, they will curse us. Curse us in this life, curse us in the next life. This is a severe warning. Something we should really should consider. Who wants to be under the curse of Allah? Who feels that he can stand in the curse of Allah? We should all shudder when we hear such verses. If we don't, if such verses don't touch us and make us you know, feel that we have not been fulfilling our responsibility here, Ashamed to stand before Allah. It means that our hearts have become hard. Our hearts have hardened. Allah talks about those whose hearts have become hard. Means that we are lost. We are lost. We are the walking dead in this life. The verses of Allah have no effect on our hearts. And something so severe as this. And Prophet Muhammad as collected in Abu Dawood, Sunan Abi Dawood, and An Nasa'i, authentically, stated, Man katama ilman al minnar. And whoever hides knowledge will be branded with that knowledge, with a branding iron from the hellfire. This is telling us that the consequence of not conveying the word of Allah is hell for us. It is a major sin. It is a major sin. Because whenever you have the consequence of an action being the hellfire, this is telling us that this is a compulsory duty which we have not fulfilled, which then becomes a major sin, major haram. And some people will say, well, these people, they're not interested. They really don't want to know about Islam. You know, whenever I try to say anything, they just, you know, turn away. They're not interested. They don't show any kind of concern. They're not, they don't even believe in God or whatever. Well, Allah tells us in Surah Al-Imran, verse 20, وَإِن تَوَلَّوْا 
If they turn away, what is on you is only to convey the message. That's all. What is your responsibility? Is to convey the message. If they turn away, it's on them. Our duty is not to make them guided because you know, you cannot guide the ones that you love. It's Allah who guides who He wishes. And He guides those who sincerely want guidance. But we cannot judge people to say, well, this one wants guidance, that one doesn't really want guidance. We don't know what is in the hearts of people. Our duty is only to convey the message. As long as people are willing to listen, then we continue to convey. We don't stop. We never give up on anyone as long as they still are willing to listen. We don't give up on them, you know, until they die. When they die, finish. Okay, the door is closed. We keep on striving to convey that message to them in a variety of different ways. If it doesn't work one way, you try another way. If it doesn't work that way, you try another way. But you don't give up. Personally, I mean, I can say I accepted Islam in 1972. Alhamdulillah. My parents didn't accept Islam until 1994. 22 years later. And believe me, I was giving them dawah in those 22 years. You know? But that's what it took. The point is that if I gave up, because of course when I first came in Islam, I had that you know, initial uh, awareness you know, of how astray my life had been and everything, and everything was now very clear. You know, and I brought that to my parents and they rejected it. Or they weren't ready to accept it. They didn't reject it in the sense of saying, okay, it's no, it's no good, so on, so on. No, it's just, it's good for you. It's good, it's good. We see it can benefit you, but, you know, uh, give us a chance to do our own thing, right? So uh, they weren't, you know, willing to accept it. So, I mean, I could have been discouraged and just given up and felt, oh, well, you know, what's the point? They're not interested. But no, I kept on trying with them this way, that way, another way. And that's how we have to be. We cannot give up simply because people do not accept Islam after we have given it to them. In the Da'wah Center, which I am a director of in, in, in uh, Dubai, we have approximately 25 people accepting Islam every month. Alhamdulillah. The vast majority of the, that 25 are not people who we directly have given da'wah to. But people who somebody gave a little bit of da'wah here, somebody else gave them a little bit of da'wah, somebody gave them a little, you know, along the way until finally, you know, they bumped into us and we gave them the final push. Right? But we didn't start the da'wah with them. The vast majority of them were given da'wah from a number of other different sources before they finally, you know, came across us. And many people we give da'wah to, they go and we never see them again. We don't know what happened. You know? Because let's say only a very small percentage, maybe only about 10 or 15% of them, we can say, we started the da'wah with them from zero and took them all the way to their accepting Islam. You know, by Allah's grace. 
only a small percentage. The vast majority is from the efforts, the, the efforts of many others that they came in contact with. And as I said, many we give dawah to, when they go, we don't see them again. Sometimes we hear later on, two years later, three years later, we run into the person, hey, you know, remember me? We had come so and so, so they had already accepted Islam somewhere else and there they were practicing. So our duty is just to convey the message, to give them that seed. You know, it is on them, it is by the will of Allah, whether that seed will grow amongst them and flower into Islam or whether it dies. Our duty is just to convey the message. <clears throat> and when we are conveying the message, we should be aware of where to begin. What should be our focus? And the focus is mentioned in a hadith narrated by Ibn Abbas, in which he said, لما بعث النبي معاذ نحو اليمن قال له when the Prophet Muhammad sent Mu'adh ibn Jabal as the governor to Yemen he said to him إنك تقدم على قوم من أهل الكتاب فليكن أول ما تدعوهم إليه أن يوحد الله تعالى you are coming to a people from among the people of the book. So let the first thing that you call them to be that they establish the oneness of Allah. And Allah Ta'ala. That is the focus. That is the key. That is salvation. Salvation lies in them recognizing the oneness of Allah. So that has to be the core of our dawah. Now, when we are giving dawah in the variety of different circumstances of the lives that we live, we may mostly will not be able to come to somebody and start talking to them about the oneness of Allah. What will happen is that conversations may begin on a variety of different topics. But what we try to do is we try to work the topic around to the oneness of Allah. That's what we do. Because we know that's the goal. We need to get them to that point. If they agree on everything else about Islam, but they don't arrive there, then we have not conveyed the message. Conveying of the message ultimately means conveying tawheed to the people. But as I said, we may have to go from a variety of different points to try to get them there. Because we have to consider ourselves whenever we take up this very important responsibility of da'wah, we have to consider ourselves as doctors. As a doctor, you don't have a bottle of pills that every uh, patient who comes in to see you, first thing you do is you make a prescription for them, you give them these pills. The same prescription, same pills every time. Each person comes, you have to find out what is their sickness? What is their illness? What are the causes? What has led to their state? Having discovered that, then you give them certain pills to help them get back to normalcy. Right? And uh, 
whatever final pills you need to straighten them out, you give them also along with it. And that's the same way we have to approach uh, da'wah to non-Muslims. That we have to understand that each person has his own individual uh, uh, life experience. You have in front of you atheists. Some. There are few. Most people are already believe in God. But you do have some atheists out there. When you deal with an atheist, you have to deal with them really as individuals. Because you need to find out, why did that person become an atheist? This is one thing, when we're giving da'wah on an individual level, it's different from giving da'wah, you know, on a large scale, with a large scale audience, where you may just outline some general principles. But when you're dealing with individuals, then you have to look into that individual and find out what has caused this disease. You don't tell him necessarily that it's a disease, but you know, that's how you look at it from that perspective. What has caused this disease where this person is now denying the existence of Allah? It could be tragedy in their life. It could be their upbringing. Maybe their parents were also atheists. You know, it could be their readings, what they have read in school whilst they're in school. You know, it could be a variety of different things which lead people to this. We need to find out what is their particular problem and then we try to address that problem. Why they got to this point. And then we try to bring them to the oneness of Allah. Similarly, Christians. Christians come in all kinds of, you know, shades, shapes, backgrounds. I mean, yes, there is a basic thing that they believe God is three in one. But you will even find amongst them, some of them who say, no, no, we don't even believe that. The Jehovah's Witness, they don't believe God is three in one. The Mormons. So then you'll find, for example, uh, we know normally Christians are eating pork. But then again, if you run into Seventh-day Adventists, they don't eat pork. So, you see, you can't make certain assumptions and then just come at all Christians with the same assumption. No. You have to get an idea of what these people's beliefs are. You know, even people who are standard Anglicans, you know, who are supposed to be following mainstream Christianity... When you start to talk to them, you know, about Jesus being the only begotten Son of God, you'll find many of them feel that this is metaphorical. It doesn't mean literal. You know, you'll find many of them like this. Uh, many of them uh, don't believe, you know, even in the miracles of Jesus, that these were like stories. You, you, so you'll find that when you're trying to convey Islam to them, you have to know what their individual beliefs are before you try to get the clear message across to them. So, it is very important for us to call, as we said in the very beginning, to the way of our Lord with hikmah. Hikmah being wisdom, literal in translation, but meaning utilizing the methodology of the Quran. With wisdom. And using good speech. Not to insult them and their beliefs. This is why the methodology employed by our dear brother Ahmed Didat is not a suitable methodology for giving dawah to the average Christian. It is not suitable. 
his methodology came out of these uh, debates. Debates where what happens in debates is that you know you are successful if you're able to put down your opponent, making him appear foolish or whatever. So you will snicker, you will laugh, you will deride him, and you you know you will use all kinds of of, of uh, techniques to try to put him down in front of the audience. Now that may be fine in the in in this, the case of a, a, a debate, but when you're dealing with an individual Christian, if you try to use the same methodology, it is like punching him in the nose, giving him a sledgehammer in the middle of his forehead. You know, this is, this is not the way. It is too rough, it is too coarse, etc. And personally, my own personal experience, when I was giving da'wah to my parents, that uh, they were at one point in Jiddah, uh, teaching there, and uh, one of the brothers in, in Jiddah who used to, whenever Ahmed Didat came, he would be accompanying him around uh, Saudi Arabia. He invited my parents to have dinner with Ahmed Didat. And um, my parents are very, you know, accommodating people. They're not hardcore, you know, you know uh, Bible punchers, you know. But after their meeting with Didat, you know, they step, you know, how many steps back away from Islam? I mean, I had to do a whole bunch of damage control after that, you know, trying to bring them back again, you know. He really lit into them, you know. And they, as I said, there are people who are, you know, easygoing. They were not, you know, uh, fundamentalists, you know, holding all this about the Bible. You know, they were just, you know, average, you know, easygoing type uh, Christian types. Even my father told me afterwards that, you know, that he himself didn't believe in the divinity of Jesus. That from his own childhood, he had concluded from his readings once he got a little mature, you know, doing his O-levels, doing reading some uh, philosophy and writings of philosophers, etc. He concluded that Jesus couldn't have been God. So he remained, quote-unquote, a Christian, praying only to God. But in the presence of Ahmed Didat, unfortunately, you know, (laughs) it just turned him around, you know. Though the message of Islam is very clear and really, you know, he was already, you could say, one foot inside of Islam, you know, with that, with that position. But the methodology was just too rough. See, somebody, after you're used to dealing with people, you know, in this hyper kind of circumstance, shouting, laughing, deriding, all, it's very difficult when you sit down with a common person to just turn it off, you know, because it's not something you just turn on and turn off like that. So, you know, as I said, the general advice would be not to use those techniques on the average Christian. If there's a Christian out there who, you know, already has uh, disbelieved in Christianity, considers it really off and all these kind of things, you know, those types, okay, yes, that material, you know, just confirms their own belief so they can read it and laugh. But for the average Christian, no. It is something very insulting. So though we may extract from his materials information, which we may bring back to the people in a more moderate methodology, uh, we cannot give that stuff, you know, as it is. So beware when we try to uh, convey the word of Allah to them. So as I said, we must be prepared to use a variety of different methodologies. We must consider that the people uh, have a variety of different sicknesses which we need to know about to deal with, to treat uh, effectively. 
So we may try to convey the word of Allah to them by word, speaking to them, by pamphlets, by giving them tapes, videotapes, audio tapes, you know, um, taking them to others who may be more knowledgeable than ourselves. Or maybe somebody from their peer group, you know, because you might be trying to give da'wah to somebody who is older. And, you know, older people have a difficulty in taking information from younger people. They always kind of look at them as, oh, he just came out of nappies, you know, who is he telling me, you know. I mean, though you might be telling him and his heart is saying, yeah, this is true, but, you know, it's hard for him to overcome this look at you being a youngster, you know, just out of your nappies. So better to take him than to somebody who is older, you know, somebody who is from his own generation, whatever, who can carry across that same message, but he would be more willing to listen to it from that individual because of the fact that he is from his own age group. But I would say is that the best method, the best method of da'wah is personal example. This is the best method of da'wah. The other methods of tapes and, and um, talk, booklets, etc., these are useful methods of getting information out to people. But the best example is our personal example. For most people, they are going to be looking at us. They look at Muslims. They conclude what Muslims are, etc., and what they are not, based on their behavior, how they carry themselves. So, what this invites us to is to be exemplary in our behavior. That we, in the way we carry ourselves, convey the message of Islam, of honesty, of morality, of justice, and these kind of things. We convey it in our actions, in how we deal with them. This is very important, because I know there are many people who have approached me at different, on different occasions, asking me, they're either businessmen, they have shops or whatever, they ask me, is it permissible for us to raise the prices, you know, when we see a non-Muslim come into our store? Is it permissible for us to raise the prices on them? You know, cheat them, in other words. Give them false prices. Can we do this? And when I ask them, why would you want to do this? They say, well, these people are going to hell anyway, right? <laughs> This money is not going to benefit them. It's better we take it. Right. You, know? you see, this kind of rationale, this kind of rationale, this is satanic. No. This is not the way Muslims are known for their honesty. They should be known for their honesty. We are not honest to Muslims, but dishonest to non-Muslims. Our morality is not limited to dealing with Muslims. And then we can become immoral when we're dealing with non-Muslims. No. This is one of the ways by which the Jews were misguided. They went astray. If you read about riba in the Old Testament, what it states there now is that it is not permissible for you Jews to take interest, riba, usury, to do this to your brethren. 
You see, now it's not it's not permissible to take interest from fellow Jews, but it's okay to take it from the Gentiles. You see, they changed the book. So what was evil, what was forbidden, etc. This was amongst themselves, but to other people, no, it is okay. This was their way, and this is not the way of Islam. When Allah revealed uh, the moral teachings of the scriptures, these moral teachings were for everybody. They were not limited to specific groups. So we have to remove this kind of thinking from our minds. We have to be honest in our dealings with all people. And it is that honesty in dealing which led to the conversion of many people to Islam. When we look at the spread of Islam, for example, into places like Indonesia and Malaysia, etc. That spread took place without any military action. There was no military confrontation between the Islamic State, the expanding Islamic State, and these uh, civilizations which existed in Indonesia and Malaysia, Philippines, etc. No. And in much of West Africa, no. It was carried there through traders. Traders who traded with people they had been trading with before Islam. But having become Muslims, then their way of trading changed. People could see a difference. And people wanted to know why. And they had to explain to them it was Islam that made the difference. It was Islam which taught them this other way. This way which was more honest, which was fair in dealing with people. And this attracted people to Islam in in such a manner that the largest uh, single Muslim country today is, our country of Muslims, is Indonesia. Right? This is the largest. And this is where, as I said, there was no military confrontation. Where Islam spread amongst them merely through trade. Now, in... Time is running out here. In more uh, practical terms... In, in, in the case of Muslims in the UK, the requirements for da'wah, as practical example, this means for us that we need to establish Islamic communities. We need to establish Islamic communities. This, this is something about which I spoke two years ago, for those of you who were in the... Uh, conference two years ago, I spoke about it before. And I cannot stop speaking about it because it is the only way to go. There is no real future for Islam in the UK unless Muslims establish Islamic communities across the country. There is no way to go. Where communities where Muslims have gathered into various neighborhoods, neighborhoods of various cities or whatever, towns or whatever, and established neighborhoods of Islam, where people come in, non-Muslims can come through those neighborhoods and recognize this as a Muslim neighborhood. Not a neighborhood of Bengalis, Pakistanis, Somalis. It's different. Those neighborhoods are ethnic neighborhoods. The people happen to be Muslims. 
but more important, they are Bengalis, Pakistanis, or Somalis. You know, the Arab, you know, down in London, you know, it's Arab area where all the stores are written in Arabic. Some of these, are, some of these Arabs are Christian Arabs. Some of them are, you know, a variety of different things. No, neighborhoods wherein people have congregated in those neighborhoods, have moved into those neighborhoods on the basis of Iman, on the basis of faith, with a desire to try to establish an Islamic presence, which can be exemplary, which can be an example to the society in which we live. Because this society keeps looking at the Muslim world and saying, hey, you guys are talking about Islam and how it's good and just and all these different things. But look at these places. Look at Algeria. Look at, you know, Saudi Arabia. Look at this one. Look at Egypt. Look at Sudan. Look at what they're doing there. You see, and, and it's only so much you can do to say, well, no, that's not really what Islam is. And no, Islam, they shouldn't be doing this. And, you know, no. We need to show them what impact Islam has on the life of a community if it practices it. We need to show them in practical terms. This is essential for our dawah here. This is essential for establishing our presence here. And not only that, but it is also an obligatory duty. Let us not think that this is just something, oh yes, yeah, it would be nice. No, it is an obligatory duty for us to make hijra to create these neighborhoods. This is something about which Allah addressed in Surah An-Nisa, verse 97. This is a very, very scary verse. And I think each and every one of you need to go back and to read this verse and reflect on it. Each and every one of you that currently is living in scattered locations where most of your neighbors, etc., are non-Muslims, etc., uh, in your work situation, you know, you, your wife, your children can hardly practice Islam. Your children are going to kafir schools and, you know, this is the situation you're living in. You need to go back and to read this verse. Allah says there, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ تَوَفَّاهُمُ الْمَلَائِكَةُ ظَالِمِي أَنفُسِهِمْ قَالُوا فِيمَا كُنْتُمْ Indeed, those whom the angels take their souls in a state of self-oppression, breaking the laws of Allah. The angels will say to them, in what state were you? They will reply, we were weak and oppressed in the land. This is why we were disobeying Allah in our practice, we weren't praying on time, weren't practicing hijab, we, our kids were, you know, straying and involved in drugs and, you know, this is the reason why we ended up in this kind of a state, because we were weak and oppressed. The angels will say, قَالُوا أَلَمْ تَكُنْ أَرْضُ اللَّهِ وَاسِعَةً فَتُهَاجِرُوا فِيهَا Wasn't Allah's earth expansive and wide that you could make hijra in it? Go someplace else. Then Allah goes on to say, فَأُولَٰئِكَ مَأْوَاهُمْ جَهَنَّمْ وَسَاءَتْ مَصِيرًا Those, their end will be hell, an evil abode. Those who die in that state, Allah says that they will be sent to hell. 
this is what we are faced with. This obligation for hijra is not something we can take lightly. If we die without having made that effort, then we are headed for hell. On one hand, it is an excellent mode of da'wah because we are teaching the society by example. But on the other hand, it is a mode for our salvation to save ourselves and our families. Protect yourselves and your families from the hellfire. This is the way to do it. We need to establish communities. Some people will say, that was Hijra to Medina. Yes, this verse was revealed specifically in reference to Medina. However, it is not limited to Medina. It is the blueprint of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam In establishing Islam in the Arabian Peninsula, it was the blueprint. He made Hijra to Medina... The people came and they established a community from there Islam spread over the rest of Arabia and out to the west of the world. That was the prophetic blueprint. And this is what we cannot avoid. The way of the Prophet Muhammad the way of the Prophet Muhammad Allah said, in him is the best example. His way is the only successful way. We will fail trying to do anything else. We have to come to it. And furthermore, Prophet Muhammad had said to us in a hadith narrated by Muawiyah, "La تَنْقَطِعُ الْهِجْرَةِ حَتَّى تَنْقَطِعُ التَّوْبَةِ Hijra will not end as an obligation until the acceptance of tawbah ends. وَلَا تَنْقَطِعُ التَّوْبَةِ حَتَّى تَطْلُعَ الشَّمْسِ مِنْ مَغْرِبِهَا And tawbah will continue to be accepted until the sun rises from the west. That is one of the signs of the last day. So the hijra is an obligation on us. It remains an obligation. We will not succeed in establishing Islam, having an impact on this society, until we establish communities. It is a means of da'wah, and it is a means of salvation for ourselves. In closing, let me just recap that our obligation to non-Muslims, the rights which they have over us, is that of conveying Islam to them. It is an individual right on each and every one of us, not something delegated to others. We may help others who are doing it, and we get reward for helping others who are doing it, but it doesn't negate the individual obligation that we have on each and every one of us. And we said that to not do so is to bring the wrath of Allah upon ourselves, the curse of Allah on us. It is not something to be taken lightly. We each and every one of us have to convey this word of Allah to those around us. And we said that that conveyance could be in a variety of different modes. It could be through the distribution of pamphlets, booklets, tapes, etc. 
But the best example and best, best method is by our personal example. By our personal example. And it does require us to reach the people in all the various modes properly. Possible. I said we should convey it to those who are with us in school, those who are with us on our jobs, those who may be with us, you know, uh, we travel to, to, to work every day on the tube. They are sitting in the same place beside them. We see them every day, but they're a familiar face. We try to convey the word of Allah to them. To some degree, it also requires us to get out of our homes, to step out, and to try to bring it directly to them. As, for example, an organization to which you know, I belong here in England called the IPO, Islamic Propagation Organization, where every weekend, uh, brothers all across the country uh, set up tables and take with them literature, uh, tapes, whatever, and have their banners sitting on the table there, La ilaha illallah, Muhammadur Rasulullah, we believe in all the prophets, you know, Adam to Jesus to Muhammad and are up reaching out to people on a uh, scale, on the scale which goes beyond the individual, reaching out now to a community scale, getting that literature into their hands. Not forcing it on them, but offering it to them if they wish. You know, such an effort, for example, I feel is worthy of support. This is why I am involved in the shura of the IPO to help them, uh, help to, to guide their efforts. Uh, they need literature. They need support. They need uh, hands, people who feel, okay, we, ha we can spare a few hours on the weekend to go to some city centers and participate in this. And um, we can approach uh, those who have this intention or feel they would like to do this as a uh, sacrifice on their part for the sake of da'wah to convey the word. They can approach the brothers who have a table, this IPO table, and sign up uh, and offer their services to them. This is on a very practical, grassroots, you know, down-to-earth kind of level. But we have still in front of us the establishment of communities. And that is the ultimate level that we have to strive for. Allah knows whether we will actually make it or not. We may strive throughout our lives and fail. It doesn't happen, doesn't manifest itself, or only... Aspects of the community can be established. Only a Muslim school or a Muslim clinic or, you know, some aspects. But the point is that we died trying. And Allah will reward us for having tried. But if we sit back, if we become complacent, if we feel that life here is okay, then we are in trouble. Then we are in trouble. And I ask Allah to put in our hearts a desire to convey his word to others, to live in accordance with that word and to convey it to others in this society, to fulfill our obligations to the non-Muslims so that on the day of judgment, no one can point a finger to us and say, he didn't convey, she didn't convey. They knew and they didn't tell us. As-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. brother Bilal. Mashallah, there's not much time left for questions. But, uh, brothers and sisters, before you ask the questions, I think uh, Brother Abu Muntasir has some announcements to make at the end. So please don't rush away after the questions have been answered, inshallah.
So what we intend to do, inshallah, is to... You can have written questions which have been already submitted and there's also roving microphones if anyone wishes to put their question to the microphone. We'll try and balance this and we'll start with the written question immediately, inshallah. Okay, I'll try to answer since we have many questions and very little time. I'll try to answer them as quickly as possible. First question, what do we do if we have to wear a uniform in school that doesn't distinguish ourselves from the non-believers? Well, I would say that the uniform should be worn in such a way that it, it does distinguish ourselves. You know, you can modify that uniform and you have the right to modify that uniform as the right for um, religious uh, expression, you know, is preserved in the Constitution of, of England. So you need to struggle for that, make sure that you do have the right to make whatever modifications are necessary to distinguish Muslims from non-Muslims. And this also points towards the, the great necessity for what? For Islamic schools. Because why should our, our youths have to be put in this position? In an Islamic school, then they will be dressed in accordance with Islamic teachings. They will not have to be making these kind of distinctions. My job involves going out and seeing customers. Therefore, I see four or five different people a day. Is it still obligatory on me to give them da'wah since I spend a little time with them and I'm there uh, to do a job. No, this does not absolve us from da'wah. Alhamdulillah, Allah has put you in a very special position. You're able to see four or five different people every day. Then it becomes even more obligatory on you to carry the message to them. You have a little pamphlet and so on and so with them after you talk to them about whatever else. You know, you can just show them the pamphlet. There's a nice one which is called Understanding Islam and Muslims. Very colorful, very pretty and so on and so You know, you offer it to them. You know, would you like to read this? If they say no, okay, fine. You carry on. You know, it's not hard sell. You just offer it to them at the end of whatever you had to present. Uh, okay, okay, go ahead. We'll take one from the microphone. But, you know, we'll just try to because we have most of our things uh, here. As brothers, just really following on from what from Sheikh Abu Amina said, we're just, uh, we're just down there by where the books are. We have a small exhibition. For those interested in, in maybe doing a dower table, in their particular area. If you are interested, as many brothers here are doing, inshallah, just come down. We supply the books free. We supply the table and the poster free. All of the literature, the Qurans is free. We just expect you to turn up, inshallah, once a week on a Saturday in your local areas. The sheikhs made enough points with regard to the importance of dawah. So there's no excuse. You can't say you don't have books, you don't have support. We're, the organization was formed and we have, alhamdulillah, like Sheikh Abu Amin and brothers on the Shura. It's a very trustworthy organization. So if you'd like to come down and give your names, you're more than welcome. Zahalaka. Assalamualaikum. One more. One more. Yeah, okay. I guess we're, our time is basically out. Brother saying one more question. Um, what I would just say is that maybe, will we have some kind of session to... Huh? Okay, we'll try to save some of these questions and deal with them in the evening sessions, inshallah. Can we take Christians as friends and what are our guidance and limitations? Well, the issues of friends, we have to be friendly with them in the sense of giving da'wah. You know, one cannot do so with, you know, open hatred in our faces. You know, if we have hatred in our hearts for them because, simply because they're Christians, we hate them. Be sure it's going to look, it's going to show up on our faces. It's going to come out in the words that we have. We can't make da'wah feeling like that. You know, Prophet Muhammad you know, hated 
hell for people. This is what he hated. You know, but his approach in da'wah was one which was very soft, one very open. You know, and that's how we have to uh, follow it. Uh, what are your views on Muslims allowing Jehovah's Witness into their homes? Allowing them in the homes if you've got a solid uh, program of da'wah to give them. But just to go and sit and listen to their message, of course, is foolishness. Instead of establishing small communities, wouldn't it be better to strive to establish an Islamic state? Well, the Islamic state is something which Muslims are obliged to establish on a world scale. But us sitting here in England uh, to talk about establishing Islamic state when the Muslim countries have the problems that they have is ludicrous. You know, we can know it. We should be informed about it. But to call to it in the sense that that's where our energy is, is, is placed, no, this is ludicrous. We should put our energy on what we can actually do. And that which we can actually do is we can create these communities. How do you explain to non-Muslims who is Allah? I have never heard of Allah. Well, I would say to them first and foremost that Allah is the Arabic name for God. right? Because they all heard about God. But then you go on to clarify to them that the Islamic concept of God is unique. That it isn't a God who had a son, you know, or a God who had a father and a brother, etc., etc., you know, but a unique God who is unique in his oneness and his attributes, etc., etc. Is it a nice way to make people aware by saying, don't do like Mr. A does, identifying names rather than saying, doesn't uh, so and so? Well, I guess this is in reference to um, uh, Sheikh Ahmed Didat's. Uh, presentation I suggested to you. Well, this here, I'm not putting down Sheikh Ahmed Didat. You know, if I'm saying something derogatory or something like this, then of course, definitely not. But um, Sheikh Ahmed Didat's literature is all around in the hands of everybody. And when we're speaking about this, we can't uh, talk in general terms where a person may not grasp what in fact we're speaking about. What will the state of those people who make tawassal uh, to Allah through the Prophet and believe that Allah is everywhere and pray to saints, etc. If they do this unknowingly, thinking this is from Islam, will they be punished for their lack of knowledge? That is with Allah. Allah knows what opportunity they had to find the truth, uh, what uh, was their state, whether the knowledge was available or not available, etc. And Allah is the one to judge. On a general scale, yes, those people who die in the, that state of shirk, etc., Allah has said they're going to be in hell forever. But on an individual scale, we don't know what was going on in that individual. So you cannot say uh, with regards to Muslims, you know, that all of them are going to hell because they're involved in this. No, we can't. Especially when we have the hadith in Sayyid bukhari about the individual who told his family to burn his body, scatter it in the sea and on the land, you know, and in the belief that Allah will not, you know, Question him, and then when Allah, you know, brought him back together and asked him why did he do this, he said, "Out of fear of you, Allah," and Allah put him in paradise. Even though the belief that he had that Allah would not be able to get a hold of him if he had his body burnt into ashes and sprinkled in the sea and on land, this belief is kufr. It's kufr. It's denying Allah's ability to resurrect us. But Allah overlooked that because it was ignorance on his part and put him in paradise because of his fear of Allah. So, you know, that is out there. It's in Sahih Bukhari. It's right in front of us. This is telling us that ultimately we cannot judge individuals and say that all these individuals are going to hell. No, we can say in general, one who dies in this state, as Allah said, is going to hell. 
But for the individual, their affair is with Allah. Barakallah fikum. Okay, Assalamu alaikum. Brother Abu Muntasir has got uh, some announcements to make. I think oh, we, could, we could listen all day for that talk, inshallah. Well, you said you've, you've got another five more minutes. You got five, five minutes? more minutes. Oh, five more minutes. Okay, brother. Could I just. Could you want some sisters? Oh. Yeah, okay, give me a couple from the sisters. Okay, wait a minute. We didn't give any questions from the sisters. Let me just take a few from them. These are all from the brothers. Uh, my sister appeared to have come very close to accepting Islam. I uh, then was told by her, I was then told by her that she was gay. She still seems to be interested in Islam. How do I approach da'wah? I also fear the reaction of my husband towards her and have not told him in the hope that she will still turn to Islam. Is this haram? Uh, because a person may be gay, it doesn't mean that we cannot give them da'wah. You know, gay, you know, being gay uh, actively is a sin. But so is adultery, so is fornication, you know. And much of the other non-Muslims that we'll be ca calling to, though they're not gay, they're involved in fornication and adultery. So do we say we're not going to give them dawah simply because they're involved in fornication and adultery? No. You know, we still have to convey the word to them. If they accept Islam, then we try to you know, clarify these other things and help them out of their illnesses. You say it's an obligation to make hijrah, but isn't it also important to give dawah to your family who may not be practicing? Yes, it is. That's why I said hijrah... I don't mean necessarily everybody packing up their bags and heading over to Saudi Arabia or to the Emirates you know, or Sudan. No, no. I'm not suggesting that. As I said, Hijra here, we talked about within England. You know, Go to Leicester. There's, in, for example, in Leicester, there's a number of Muslim brothers, families that have actually gathered there and trying to create a community there in Leicester. You know, they're starting an Islamic school. They have some Islamic businesses. And the brothers have some skills. And they're inviting and encouraging people to come there and try to create a community based on faith. Right? So that is something which is within our grasp, and I think we should consider it seriously. Among the Muslims in UK, there seems to be a thinking that they can lie to the government unemployment housing taxes. Is this acceptable? Of course, lying is not among the traits of the believers. You know, um, simply because, unfortunately, we do find Muslims here, because we're under a non-Muslim government, this becomes now justification to be involved in all kinds of deception, etc., etc. No. Uh, Muslims are known for their honesty, sticking by their word. You know, they are here. They have, um, uh, they have made a pact with this country, with their passport, etc., to be among the citizens. They take benefits from the country in the sense of the roads and the, the transportation, all these different things, then they have to pay the taxes and the things that are required here to try to skip out of it and to run away from it and all these other kinds of things, you know. And then you find, uh, I remember when I was here before, there was a thing in the newspaper about this uh, individual, a Muslim family. This guy, head of the family, big long beard and looking like, you know, a holy man, if you have the idea of a holy man. This guy had been caught for this huge scam. He was, you know, fraudulently had his family. They would fake accidents and, and collect benefits. And he had built up a million-pound business for himself through this. You know, this is horrible. There's no justification for this kind of behavior. Having Islamic community uh, divorce of cultural or nationality, or nationality has been a major problem in England. Majority uh, because of our outlook on life or perhaps our knowledge of Islam, even as Muslims. It's too low for us to realize the practicality and possibility of universal Islam. Well, 
This is what the establishment of Islamic community addresses, because this will be a community not only of Pakistanis or Somalis or Bengalis or whatever, but it is a community of believers. And that's the only way that ultimately we're going to succeed in overcoming uh, these kind of nationalistic uh, boundaries which, which split up and fractionalize our community is by you know, functioning, working, striving for the sake of Islam based on our common faith. Uh, brothers and sisters at time make hijra without having the reality or knowing the reality of the situation. Uh, comment. Well, this is real. Uh, we do need when we're going to make hijra, uh, however it be, whether it be within the country or outside the country, we do need to investigate uh, whatever move we're going to make thoroughly. And if you're involved in any kind of Islamic venture, whether it be business or ed education or whatever, we need to investigate thoroughly. To, because as they say, if you don't uh, plan for, uh, to, to succeed, you in fact are planning to fail. You know, this is the bottom line. Uh, so success, we need to do what, take what uh, necessary steps to get to successful, uh, the necessary information for us to succeed in whatever Islamic ventures we approach. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. I think to sum up then, I think this, uh, this particular topic, it seems to me it could have gone on and on and on, and a pile of questions reflect that. Perhaps it's, it's, uh, we should thank uh, Dr. Bilal Phillips for an incredible presentation and realize that he is available and he will be walking about. Maybe you'd like to pounce on him and ask him a few questions. Jazakumullah khairan. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. Just a, um, a sad announcement, really. Um, we were talking about uh, uh, Sheikh Idris, his dad, sorry, uh, Abu Idris, um, being ill in hospital. He did pass away last night, uh, Maghrib time. Uh, we, are, we have arranged his funeral, Janaza prayer, today at half past 12. I'll announce again after the next lecture, inshallah, so everybody is well aware of the event, inshallah. So half past 12, the Janaza will take place um, where you have been praying Fajr. And, you know, the same place.